We can be dream makers, nurturing, compassionate. Nosotros podemos ser más unidos. We can be anything. I'm Grant Oliphant. This is We Can Be. Today we have a guest whose journey could be the subject of a movie, and in fact it has been. Hamza Perez is the co-founder of the Light of Age Mosque on Pittsburgh's north side, as well as the founder of YANI, Youth Alliance of Network and Empowerment, at the Islamic Center of Pittsburgh. My family, being born on Valentine's Day, they always told me I'm going to be this big lover, so I said, man, I got to start investigating how to be a lover. So I began my process of trying to become a lover around the age of five. My mom went to go get a haircut, and at this time, back in the 80s, Brooke Shields was big. And so this white woman in the hair salon, she looked like Brooke Shields. And I said, man, that's it, this is my time. I gotta make her my woman. And then I said, man, but I'm not a man, you know? My dad said, men have hair on their chest. And right when I said that, I heard the, the scissors snip and I saw some of my mom's hair fall down. So I went and I swooped down like an eagle and just snatched a hand fist of hair. So I went to the bathroom, stuffed it down my shirt so it can emerge from the top of my collar. And I said, man, I'm gonna go sit next to her. So I sat next to her and, and I looked at her like, what's up now, you know? <laughs> and then I felt what I call now the, like, the breeze of love. It was my mom's Puerto Rican hand smacking me in the face. <laughs> All the women were laughing at me. And it was my first uh, taste of love, you know? It got me uh, eight kids to this day. <laughs> Hamza's pathway from a Puerto Rican Catholic family to a Muslim leader has been one with many turns. And that is just what makes him and his work so engaging. His life thus far has been about overcoming perceptions of what he could become, where he could go, what he should believe, a family, friends, and in some instances, a suspicious and hostile world. He writes, has been a rapper, has been the subject of a PBS film, New Muslim Cool, and he is a positive and hopeful force in our city and world. He is also an incredibly modest man, and I am honored to share his story. Hamza Perez, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and I think an important moment for us to have this conversation. This program is really about creating a better country and a better world. It's for people who believe in the possibility of that. I know you do. So I'm delighted that we're able to feature you. You're a man of color. You've described yourself this way. You've got a full, thick beard <laughs> and a traditional Islamic dress and the outfit you would describe as... Kamis, thobe. So you're embodying what an Islamic man might look like for Americans. How are you treated as you walk around Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh is kind of behind other major cities in cultural diversity. You know, I think people in generally are good here. And especially on our side of the city, on the north side, a lot of people have a lot of respect for Islam, as far as from the African-American community. Now with other populations moving in, our neighbors, they also have good experiences with us. So, you know, I, I don't find too much trouble. Yeah. Have you encountered moments where you have encountered trouble? Uh, not really trouble, just acts of racism. Yeah. And how do you react in those moments? Usually they do it while they're driving by really fast. 
So it's somebody yelling a, a slur out a window? Is that, yeah, exactly. And then getting away. Yeah, exactly. Brave. It's <laughs> <laughs> only happened like two times since yeah. I've been here. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, since I've been here for, you know, 14 years, it's only happened two times. As a culture right now, the way our country responds to what they see portrayed about Muslims, there is a considerable emphasis on violence and terrorism in the media. And that's promulgated, I think, now by a political agenda that clearly has embraced that as an orthodoxy. Do you get discouraged ever by how little attention is paid to your example and the example of other Muslims living a life of inspiration? No, I never get discouraged. I think it's actually good stuff. Because when people hear about this stuff and then they really meet a Muslim, they get to really see and experience, yeah. you know. One of my teachers said that a pharaoh is never sent without another Moses being sent. So there's always a positive side to things. You know, it's just up to Muslims, you know, to really show people who we really are. We can't just say it. People can only really see actions. We can't say we're a religion of peace and then people, all they see is violence and hatred from Muslims. We have to really show them what Islam is. Do you think the model of what you're doing has inspired any of those neighbors? Of course. I've seen a lot of good dialogue, a lot of people stepping up, talking with each other, people from different backgrounds, people from different beliefs, people who don't even have certain beliefs, yeah. coming together for conversations, you know, and I think it's been real positive. We have, like, community cookouts. Every year we do, like, a Malcolm X community cookout, feed the people, no pamphlets, no nothing. Just feed them for the sake of love of humanity. And they have a lot of respect for that. Do you encounter any people who are afraid you're trying to convert them? No, because we don't preach. You know, we just do some feedings, and they know us from interacting with us because they're our neighbors. And so it's a lot of uh, respect and love. And we're trying to form Pittsburgh's first Muslim community a neighborhood. We seek refuge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the evil that exists within ourselves. We seek refuge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the evil outcomes of our misdeeds. We all had a community in Massachusetts. It must have been more than 55 people that became Muslim. And then we all moved here to Pittsburgh to create a Muslim community. Our vision is to create um, a masjid and a school and a youth center. You've actually been the subject of a, an amazing array of media already. You've had a movie produced about you and articles written about you. There's a wonderful saying that's quoted in one of the articles that's been written about you, that God writes straight and crooked lines. I think that's so true of people who work in fields where they help others. Let's talk about your path. Can you talk a little bit about your childhood and what brought you to doing what you're doing? Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York, Sunset Park area. And I grew up like during the birth of hip hop. We used to live on 30th Street. The train station was two blocks up on 32nd. We would get on the train and as you got close to Fulton, downtown Brooklyn, there was an amazing graffiti piece on the poles. And when you drove by fast, it had a figure with a spray can in a different position on each pole. So if you went by real fast, it looked like the character was running with you. And then with all the graffiti around, you come out of the train station, you hear the boom box, people break dancing. It was like 
a real amazing sight to see, you know. It was something that captured me, you know, that my mom would go shopping and I would just stay outside and hang out and watch what's going on. Did that give you a taste for the street? I mean, of course, I have, you know, family members that were heavily involved in the streets and I would be around them and Mm -hmm. they would be smoking marijuana around me and I would be smelling it and I like to smell it. I thought it was stuff that Indians smoked, so I was, you know. (laughs) (laughs) My family always talked about our native side of Puerto Rico. It's like, I guess this is what we do, man. Um, From there, I moved to uh, Puerto Rico, from Puerto Rico to a place called Worcester, Massachusetts. And it was in Worcester, Massachusetts. I grew up in a housing project called Plummy Village. And there was an amazing woman named Anne Moriarty who began to give youth jobs at the age of 14. You know, growing up in a poor neighborhood, um, having a job at the age of 14, especially the year that the first $100 sneakers came out, is huge, you know. I remember I, I bought my first pair of $100 sneakers, and my grandfather took them after that. I only wore them three times. <laughs> Do you remember what type they were? Yeah, they were Nike Air Max. <laughs> I was in a state of shock. But she gave us an opportunity to begin working at a summer camp, and that sparked something in me to enjoy working with youth. You know, where we'd all like the story to end is that that launched you onto a path of good and productivity wasn't how it worked out. What happened next? My family was part of some gangs in Brooklyn, New York, and I I was kind of around that atmosphere. So I began to start getting into trouble. I remember I got kicked out of school, and um, my mother sent me to Puerto Rico. And when I was in Puerto Rico, a friend of mine was giving me laced marijuana. And I really didn't know what it was. I was only 14 years old. And then later on, I found out that it was heroin that he was putting in the marijuana. My condition got pretty bad smoking this laced marijuana. And my family sent me back to the United States. And when I was in the United States, a lot of the older guys in the neighborhood, they were hooked on drugs. And they weren't like taking over the business side of selling drugs in the housing projects. So then I received my first package from a drug dealer. He saw, I guess, some potential in me, and I was the first one from amongst my friends to begin to start selling drugs. By the time I turned like 16, 17, I began to sell crack. From there, you know, things just got pretty intense and downhill. For many young men, that's the, unfortunately, the end of the story. We see the way the criminal justice system works in this country, that often that leads to prison and prison leads to more of the same. What saved you? I think, you know, growing up old school, kind of Catholic, my mom taking me to church. You know, Latinos are very religious. You can see some Latinos that are straight gangster and they have like a tattoo of Jesus or a rosary tattoo. And so sometimes I would take a break from selling drugs and I used to go smoke weed on the steps of a church. And I used to just talk to God like, man, like, what are you doing with me? You clearly were looking for something. You clearly were struggling. What took you away from the streets? What transformed you? I was the first one to start selling So I was seeing friends of mine who were once like innocent become overcome by street life. And they were starting to get addicted to drugs. And that made me feel really bad inside. And then I would see that we were actually doing pretty good. No matter how much money we got, it never quenched the thirst of of happiness for us. And so I knew that there had to be something bigger than this. 
the image of you praying on church steps about what's going to happen to you is pretty poignant. And yet, here you sit before me, a Muslim man. How did that transition happen, and what part did it play in taking you off the streets and leading you to a new life? I was deeply affected by Malcolm X's story. Mm. And Malcolm also had his experiences in the street. So as things began to get intense and we weren't tasting happiness, even though we were making money, we were like searching for something. A friend of mine who couldn't just take it anymore, he went to go smoke some weed on the steps of the mosque because the mosque was right up the street from where we grew up. Mm. So as he was rolling the weed at the steps of the mosque, a Muslim brother invited him in. And that's it. No one ever saw him again. And then the rumors were in the neighborhood was that he got kidnapped by some Arabs and Pakistanis. <laughs> I didn't even know what a Pakistani was back then. And so I was trying to figure out what was going on. I saw a Muslim that I went to school with, and I knew he was Muslim because of his hat. And me inquiring about my friend began the process of uh, me being interested in Islam. Was it just walking in Malcolm X's shoes that attracted you, or was there something about the religion that seemed redemptive for you? I believe God was planting the seeds since I was young. Because in New York, when my mom would go shopping and I would stay outside, I would see Muslims selling incense. Muslims would be on the street corner in Brooklyn, and they looked like beautiful people to me. And then when I lived in the housing projects, there was a Muslim brother who would play Malcolm X's speeches in the window. He would put a speaker in the window. And then my friend becoming Muslim, I remember I went to go buy some cigars to smoke weed, and my friend picked me up, and he was listening to the Quran. And I thought it was the most amazing thing I ever heard in my life. The Quran had a deep impact on me. With the war, this book will sat by the door. Say something about my prophet, I'm a bust your jaw. I'm an E-F-F-E-C-T, with an arms struggle based on F-T-G, guerrilla warfare. Blood, sweat, and tears. A non-stop fight for 1,400 years. I'ma kill for my ock. I die for my ock. Beats me loud, we gon' rock. You are a rapper. You are, are you still doing that? By nah, way? man. You I'm, gave it I'm up. I'm too old and fat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in old fat rappers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why was music important for you as part of your conveying a message? I think I was always into music since I was young, and I was doing music before I even became Muslim. And I think it's a form of communication. It's a form of being able to connect with people. And so I had a good time doing it when I did it. I stopped about eight years ago. Was it hard to let go of that part of yourself? No, I actually wanted to let go of it. Hmm. Because, you know, music, it has this positive sides and its negative sides. So from an artist's perspective, if you're trying to develop yourself spiritually, you can see your ego developing. And when the film came out and the album dropped, I was starting to do tours and, you know, I had a possibility of really putting myself out there and I didn't like the taste of it. So I just shut it down all the way. If someone's going to be involved in music and be a Muslim, they have to be very conscious about their ego and the inward corruptions of seeking attention and all this. You have to always renew your intention. Mm. In Islam, the biggest threat to humanity is not Satan. Satan, of course, is, is a problem, you know, evil. But we believe the greatest evil exists right inside of ourselves. You know, it's our ego. It's, our, it's that corruption, that love of leadership, spotlight, and wanting to be heard and turning people's attention towards ourselves. We started with the idea of 
God writing straight on crooked lines. And the path that you've been led on has now led you to working with youth, starting a mosque on Pittsburgh's north side and trying to live your philosophy of love as an example for others. Describe the work for us, if you would. I was offered a job by the YMCA of Pittsburgh to deal with drug dealing prevention. That's one of my specialties. Sometimes there's stuff for tobacco prevention, alcohol prevention, but nothing for drug dealing prevention. It ended up working out really good for me. So I moved here, I opened up a mosque in the north side, and now um, I've opened up you know, a youth center in Oakland to try to help deal with Muslim youth in this society and deal with their parents and you know, youth culture. I saw a presentation by a demographer the other day about what she's calling iGen, which is the generation after millennials. Her research suggests that there's a correlation between the rise of smartphones in our culture and rising rates of depression, alienation, isolation among youth, including rates of depression and suicide. Is this something you see? Big time. I think people are losing heart-to-heart interactions because everything is done through smartphones. Their friendships, their communications. Sometimes you go out to dinner, you see two people in love with one another, both staring at their screens, not looking at each other. A lot of how people learn, they just Google things. There's a difference between information and sacred knowledge that you broke yourself and traveled to receive and you sit in front of another human being with the reality that you don't know. You sit like an empty cup. But if everything I have is through information and Google, and if everything I have and I communicate through social media, I'm not used to -to heart-to-heart interactions and admonition. I think a powerful example of this was the march that took place the other day. The March for Our Lives, I believe it was called. Six minutes and about 20 seconds. In a little over six minutes, 17 of our friends were taken from us, 15 were injured, and everyone, absolutely everyone, in the Douglas community was forever altered. Everyone who is there understands. Everyone who has been touched by the cold grip of gun violence understands. For those who still can't comprehend because they refuse to, I'll tell you where it went. Right into the ground, six feet deep. If you saw the young Latina, I believe her name was Emma Gonzalez, Mm -hmm. the youth could not take her silence. They were not able to handle that silence. They started shouting. They could not take a reality moment with themselves. I I believe, like, you know, smartphones increases this. Uh, That's just so powerful. I'm sorry. I have to (laughs) pause. (laughs) You just spoke to my heart about everything I believe. The whole events around Parkland are fascinating. These kids seem to have ignited a movement that has escaped us for decades. They've demonstrated the power of their voice. They've captured a sense of possibility that's been missing in the country. You work with youth, so I'm just wondering if you can reflect with us for a moment about why you think it is that young people who are trapped behind screens so often are the very ones who are uniting us in a movement. We underestimate youth empowerment. They're being given a platform. 
you know, people underestimate the power of youth. And sometimes we don't view youth as young adults. I believe once they start turning 14, 15, we have to begin to recognize them as young adults and then give them opportunities for leadership. But I believe gun violence has been here, but the problem has been amongst minorities. And now that it's affecting more white America, now is a big concern. But how many killings have been taking place in Chicago and New York and Massachusetts amongst minorities? It's been taking place for a long time. But now that it affects maybe some schools where white America goes to, now it's a huge thing. Same thing with opioids and heroin epidemics. How long has heroin been killing neighborhoods of minorities? But now that it's creeping into white communities, now it's an epidemic. What I think has been extraordinary about the kids in the Parkland case, though, is that they're very conscious of that. They designed March for Our Lives to be broadly embracing. They talk about white privilege. They talk about the fact that this wasn't an issue until they spoke out. Do you see that self-awareness in a lot of kids that age? I think it exists, and I think adults are the ones who dumb it down. Mm. Sometimes adults are scared to allow youth to take the lead. And so I believe it exists inside them. And those adults who are nurturing that and allowing youth to, to have that platform, they're going to experience that. And we have to begin to cultivate that amongst youth. Bashir Jones, who's now in the city council in uh, Cleveland, he said something profound. He said, there's a difference between elders and old people. He said, older people get in the way, elders lead the way. And I think that's what it comes down to. Don't stop the energy of the youth, but be there for guidance and advice and allow them to learn sometimes from their own mistakes. I would love to start a youth center here in Pittsburgh, a youth center for everyone, just a drop-in center, you know, where youth can come in and get services with no strings attached, you know, just come as they are. Uh, I think, you know, we need to do a better job at, uh, you know, helping polish the youth of the future and just show them love, you know. Profound. I, something I hope we can hang on to. When you look at the Parkland kids and the movement, which gives me a lot of hope, do you think about the role of spirituality in a movement like that? Of course. Or is it purely political? No. You know, when I saw Emma Gonzalez standing up there, I said, wow, I'm in the future. And who is going to show them love? Even the shooters themselves, there seem to be people who are bullied, people who maybe weren't loved and developed properly, and then they have these attacks and stuff going on. You know, who is going to take some time to polish these youth with some real care without hidden agendas? Whether it be corruption from amongst religious authorities, whether it be corruption from teachers, and whether it be cyberbullying, People are barely tasting a genuine sense of love with no hidden agendas. Let's talk about that for a minute. We're living in a time where one view of what's happening in the world is that there is a retrenchment behind walls, a lot of anger in the culture, a lot of blaming. And we see that coming from the White House on down. What's the antidote for that? I think it's going to take a serious level of patience. I think what we're seeing is the white Obama. And what I mean by that is when Obama became a president, it was empowerment for the African-American community. We got somebody in. And now we have Trump. So now you have the, the right saying, we got one of ours in. We're going to have to weather the storm. We're going to have to hang in there as a people. 
We're going to have to really come together and even be patient with those who don't like us. I kind of appreciate it because, you know, Malcolm, he used to talk about he appreciated the Southern whites more than the Northern whites. The Southerners were in your face with their hatred. The Northern whites were more hiding it and sneaky with it. I believe these people need to get out, you know, whatever they have on their chest. And it's up to us. You know, real manners and good character is not when somebody's good with you. Real good character is when someone's disrespecting you, when someone doesn't like you. How you respond to that, that determines if you have good character. I love that line, and I wish I'd heard it. Just even a couple of weeks ago, I delivered a talk to students at the University of Pittsburgh. And and in the questioning afterwards, a young man asked, how can I be civil and engage with people who don't believe I have a right to be equal? He feels profoundly disrespected, and he doesn't know how to react to people who think he doesn't have a place in this society because he's a young black man. What would be your answer to him? I would tell him that a mountain doesn't have to say it's a mountain. A mountain just stands as a mountain. Whether somebody recognizes it as a mountain or not, that's their issue. If we have respect for ourselves and we push forward no matter what condition we're dealing with, that would speak for ourselves. We have to begin to have knowledge of self and respect for ourselves and develop ourselves into better people and be, really look at these people as our brothers and sisters in humanity, even if they hate us, even if they disrespect us. They live here on the earth with us. We can become like them if we're not careful. I completely agree, and I, well, I completely agree. How do we, in a technological age where people are living increasingly behind these screens and interacting in echo chambers and filter bubbles, how do we actually have that common meeting space where the interaction between people who are different can happen so we can find our shared humanity anymore? I don't know. There's different ways it can go about based on where you're at in the country. Mm -hmm. I think food is a big thing that helps sometimes just eating with somebody, just feeding somebody. Um, we used to um, feed the homeless under the highways, and a homeless guy would come out and say, are those Muslim sandwiches? Oh, I'm out of here. I don't want no Muslim sandwich. By week three, this guy was waiting for us, like loving our sandwiches. <laughs> uh, and it's just, you know, just love. We have to stop wanting people to behave the way we want them to behave and accept them how they are. Treat them with love no matter what. The Quran says, outdo them with patience. Mm. Ali ibn Abi Talib, the cousin of the Prophet, he said, one of the ways you know that you have no patience is that you announce that you're being patient. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> we need more patience with each other as fellow human beings. And who gives you hope? Islam. In Islam, the Muslim should always be between fear and hope. Fear that I'm not doing things right, but hope that there is a God that is merciful enough to accept me how I am. Islam gives lots of hope. I want to give you the last word to say something about love, since that's your guiding philosophy. What do you want to leave people with? I just believe that we have to be careful that we don't leave this life without tasting real love. Some people taste infatuation, obsession, and all these type of things. But real love is when you look at another person and you see everything that's wrong with them and you still accept them. You still want to be there for them. And we are in a time that people need love. 
We need to respond to the armies of hatred with armies of love. That seems like the perfect note to end with and perhaps begin with, love. Thank you, Hamza. Thank you for joining us for We Can Be. We can be.